Good evening, everyone. Welcome. If you have any visitors, you are especially welcome. Um, hope we'll stay around so we can get to meet you. Let's know you better. We will sing a couple of songs and then have a reading and prayer by Chad Judge, uh, another song, and then the lesson. Uh, final prayer is by Blake Trevathan and Chris will be delivering our, our message this evening. If you will, let's stand and sing number 581. We're going to sing all three verses, and then we're going to sing the chorus at the end of the third verse. Sing on, you joyful pilgrims, nor think the moment's long. My Next song is number 647. 647. Sing verses 1, 2, and 4. <clears throat> the love of God. Since the love of God is shed, priceless blessings on my head, I have made it my own.
Scripture reading tonight comes from the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 21. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Before they, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus, because he will save the people from their sins. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come to you now thanking you for this beautiful day that you've given us. We thank you for the time that we've had today to come together to, to worship you and to sing praises to you and just be with one another of like faith. Father, we thank you for all the things that you do for us, all the many blessings that you have given us. Father, we, we thank you for Chris and his lessons today. Father, we want to thank all our mothers and grandmothers that have been a, a Christian exp uh, in our lives, that we will always find you and love you and be more like you. Father, we do pray for all the ones that are sick, the ones that are missing, uh, that are dealing with health issues or family issues, that you'll continue to be with them, strengthen and encourage them. Father, we are so happy for the two that were baptized this morning, that it makes our hearts joyful, that Father, you always be with them, be with them for the rest of their lives, that they will serve you and uh, be great Christian women. Father, we thank you for all that you do for us, and especially thank you for Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Song of invitation, if you're using a book, will be number 770. 770. I've seen that close the lesson. And if you'll stand, once again, if it's convenient, we'll sing number 824, all three verses. I'll fly away. <clears throat> Some glad morning when this life is o'er, I'll fly away. 
Good evening. Hope all of you have had a good Mother's Day and had a good lunch with them and celebrated them. Uh, we are closing out our series. Uh, we're calling Binge Reading Through the Bible tonight uh, with our very last King of Israel. He's not a king, though. It's uh, Joseph, Jesus' dad, our foster father, stepfather, however you want to think about that. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 is where you find his story. I'm sure you're familiar with this story. Uh, Joseph is one of the, the characters that we, we seem to focus on quite a bit, uh, and especially in uh, relation to Jesus there. I think maybe we can learn some things from him throughout this, uh, these couple of chapters here in the beginning of Matthew and, and maybe a little bit in Luke that maybe we've never thought about before and that will be helpful for us as we try to be men like Joseph. I want you to notice first where this guy came from. Who is Joseph? Well, like we said, we've been talking about men who were in the genealogy of Jesus, starting off with Abraham and going all the way down the line where Matthew starts from. Uh, and now we finally come down to the last uh, ancestor of Jesus. It's a man named Joseph. But what's so interesting to me at the very outset of this, you need to see who Jesus' paternal grandfather is. Who is Joseph's dad? And what was his name? And maybe some inclination about Joseph's dad's hopes and dreams for his own son. We're reading in a little bit here, but, but go with me. Listen, listen to the text here in Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. You get introduced to uh, Joseph and his father. Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So... We know that Joseph's dad's name was Jacob. Isn't that interesting? Don't you think that's interesting? Who was the first Jacob you think of? Probably the guy that was renamed Israel, right? From way back in the Old Testament, we think of, and our minds just kind of automatically go to that very first Jacob, don't we? And to be a Jacob and to have a son named Joseph... You have to have hopes for that boy, don't you? All four of our children have biblical names, and our hope is that they live up to the biblical model of their name. I'm just, it's almost outside of imagination that Jacob, this Jacob, could look at his newborn and think, what will I call you? I'll call you, since I'm Jacob, I'll call you Joseph. Because he's hoping for a double portion from God, just like the original Jacob's son, Joseph, was given a double portion by God toward the end of Jacob's life. God blessed Joseph, the first Joseph, with a double portion in Israel. He was blessed beyond all the other brothers. So not only is he a type for Jesus as Savior, since he saves his brothers and his family out of the, the, uh, the famine that's going on in Canaan and in Egypt, but he's also getting here a double portion from God. He's, he's blessed beyond even their blessings. If you're a Jacob and you name your son Joseph, that's got to be in the background of your mind. And that is what has ended up happening here. Joseph, the, uh, the father of Jesus, will have a double portion. Keep on reading with me. Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. Let's, let's learn a little bit about this guy. Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. And Joseph and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So you know the rest of the story. We'll get to that in just a second. But just watch what this just man does. You're, you're familiar, of course, with that word just, right? He's a righteous man. If, you, uh, if you've got the Blue Letter Bible app on your phones or your iPad, which I highly recommend you getting, just as a practical point, that little Blue Letter Bible app is so powerful. You can click on the word there, and it will show you every single time that that word is mentioned in all of Scripture. And so if you were to click on just right here in, jo in Joseph's story, it shows you every time that word is used. And so you can go back through and look at all the just or all the righteous people that are in the Bible and think this guy is right up there with Moses. He's right up there with Abraham. The word's even used of Jesus. He is a righteous, good man. Uh, Joseph is impressive. 
What's also interesting here is he has every right to stone her. I don't know if you've ever done the research on this, but here in Matthew 119, he says that he's a just man. He's, he's unwilling to put her to shame. He could have acted very much like his ancestor, Judah, acted when Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar, had been found to be with child in a similar incident, although hers happened the natural way, and Mary's is supernatural. And so he had every right to bring her before the elders, shame her publicly, and then have her executed. That's the law. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 21 and 22 teach that that is his right. If he had been looking to the letter of the law, that's what he could have done. But he's a just man, and he doesn't do that, even to the extent that he's not willing to put her to shame. It's interesting to me that the, that the Bible doesn't talk about her death here, but it focuses more on the shame aspect. So he, he doesn't want to do any of that. And so here's a guy who is betrothed. He's engaged to this young lady who is, from what we know, from a good family, from what we talked about this morning. She has good parents. They've taught her scripture. She knows what's right. She knows the Bible. And so this seems to be a good match. Joseph, just man. Mary, a really righteous young lady. And so this seems to be a good match, but here she is with child, and Joseph kind of wonders what, what, what happened. Something, something's gone amiss here. He's probably misread the situation. Uh, he, he has projected on her some morality that she did not enjoy. And so he is unwilling, though, to shame her for this. And so he, he wants to quietly divorce her. Like we say, he has every right to stone her. He doesn't take it. So he's got a couple of options here. He can stone her, which is off the table at this point, or he can marry her, which also is off the table. Joseph's a just man. He's not going to invite this immoral woman into his life. And so what, what will he do? He's, he's kind of in between a rock and a hard place here, isn't he? And so he sits back and he thinks about a third option. He's going to divorce her quietly. It solves everything. It keeps her from the open shame and the death penalty, but it also keeps her away from him and his righteousness. Because people tend to rub off on us, don't they? If you're in relationship, a friendship, a marriage, or any other kind of relationship with someone who is not righteous and does not care about God's morals or values, that tends to rub off on you, doesn't it? Joseph seems to be concerned about that. And so he is unwilling to marry her, but he's also unwilling to shame her. And so here's a good man, just a strong, righteous man. And so it brings to mind this idea of are we righteous? Are we just? Would we react in a similar fashion? Are we quick to forgive? Or are we quick to anger? Maybe we can phrase it like that. Are you quick to forgive? Because Joseph's awfully quick to forgive here, isn't he? Or are we quick to anger? I'm afraid that our society teaches us to be quick to anger and slow to forgive. Hold people to the letter of the law, right? Hold their feet to the fire. Don't let them get away with this. They're running all over you. That's what our society teaches us. That's not what the Bible says, though, is it? Joseph here is quick to forgive. Look at this. Look in verse 18, Matthew 1, verse 18, and underline that word found. It's a really interesting word. Again, Blue Letter Bible will come in handy for you here. But underline found. Somebody figured out that she was pregnant. She didn't tell Joseph. Somebody sees, she starts showing apparently. She's waited long enough to tell Joseph now that she is showing. That's what the word indicates here. Uh, as someone mentioned this to Joseph. He didn't find out from her. Someone told him about her pregnancy. And so someone has come to Joseph and has let him know that his engaged wife is has been unfaithful. And so he's quick to forgive. He doesn't hold her to the letter of law, though that is his right. He doesn't do that. He's quick to forgive. So 
we start thinking, am I quick to forgive or am I quick to anger? His righteousness, Joseph's righteousness, pushed him to forgive quickly. We, we feel that pull, don't we? Because we understand that if we don't forgive others, God won't forgive us, will he? If there's anything that Scripture teaches about forgiveness, it's that. It comes across so clearly throughout Scripture. Let me list off the verses for you, just a few of them, that teach this, this principle. It's Ephesians 4, verse 32, Colossians 3, verse 13, Matthew 6, 14 and 15, Matthew 18, verse 35, Luke 6, verse 37, Mark 11, verse 25, Matthew 5, 23. And there are others, several others that talk about if you are not willing to forgive others, God is not going to forgive you. We feel that pull, don't we, to forgive others. Just from a logical standpoint, we feel that pull. Because that's always in the back of our minds. If I'm not willing to forgive you, God's not going to forgive me either. So we're, we're almost pushed into forgiveness. I don't think that that is necessarily the most right answer. I think it's a right answer, but I think there's a better right answer. I think when you grasp the level that God has forgiven you, forgiveness flows out of you so readily that you don't hold people to the letter of the law. I think we struggle to get exactly how much God has forgiven us. And so we struggle to forgive others. It's much easier, depending on your personality, to hold people to the letter of the law. You know your personality pretty well, I would imagine. And so you can, you can look in your own self and see, well, I forgive people easily. That's one of the things that I'm really good at. Or that's one of the things I struggle with. A lot of us struggle with it. And so if you struggle with it, one of the things that I found that can help us is reminding ourselves of how much God has forgiven us. It's a mountain. It's a mountain of debt that he has forgiven us. That's what Matthew 18, verse 35 teaches, right? He talks about this servant that owes a mountain of debt. And the king forgives it. And then that servant goes out and finds a guy who owes him $100. He throws him up against the wall. And he says, give me what you owe me. And the guy says, oh, I can't. I can't. Give me a little time and I'll pay you back. And he says, no, no time for you. And he throws him into the prison. Finally, the king gets word of what has happened. And he brings this, the original servant in. And he holds him to the letter of the law. Because if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. But the reason we forgive others is not necessarily because we're being pushed into it by this idea that God won't forgive us. But because we're over, forgiveness flows out of us because we understand how much we've been forgiven. You don't really appreciate that until you get it, until, until you stop and consider how much God has forgiven you. you. You don't really grasp it, and it doesn't stick with you. Let me tell you a story by a way of illustration. Uh, several years ago, Kelly and I went to Chicago. It's an awesome trip. She's got a grooming show up there that we went to. And, uh, while she's doing the grooming show, I take a three- and a four-year-old, Abby and Titus, to, uh, to Chicago to see the sights. Really, really bad idea. <laughs> so what I've done is I have uh, saved, reserved a parking spot uh, on this app, and I didn't really feel like a mile and a half to two miles was too far to walk from the parking spot to our destination, which is a beach and a hot dog stand that I really wanted to go to. So we get our parking spot in this parking garage, and we start walking. And I've got a stroller, and Abby's three, so she's sitting in the stroller. And Titus is four, so he's a big kid, so he's walking alongside me. And that works great for about half a mile. And then they start throwing fits, and uh, we have to switch. And Abby has to walk, and Titus has to ride. And finally, uh, after about another half mile, that doesn't work anymore. So we switch again, and it's just awful. <laughs> it's very, very difficult to get from A to B. And so I wish we had had a double stroller, but we didn't. We just had that one little umbrella stroller, and we're going. We finally get to the, the beach we're going to. We get the hot dogs. What I had messed up on here was they're much more tired after playing on the beach than they were on their original trip out to the beach. 
And so when we start heading back to the car, they're both so exhausted they cannot walk. And so I am trying to push the stroller with one hand, and I'm carrying the other one in the other hand. It is even worse now than it was on the trip down. And so I am thinking, what will I do to get back to my car and some, some semblance of sanity? Because this trip is just not going good. <laughs> so what do I, I hire an Uber. I call an Uber, and they come pick us up, and I pay a ridiculous amount of money to travel that half a mile, whatever was left. But I, as I sat in the car, I thought, I really appreciate my car right about now. This is, this is really nice. I've got a three-year-old and a four-year-old sitting next to me, and we get to ride in blissful quiet all the way back to our car. Once something had been taken away from you, you begin to understand how precious it is, don't you? That moment, I had realized how good it is to own a car and be able to drive wherever I want to go. But it took having it pulled away from me to understand. Once you do the research, once you stop and consider for just a moment how much God has forgiven you, the appreciation that flows out of you for that forgiveness he's given you is extended so freely to others. And that's just one aspect of the just man that Joseph is. He forgave very, very quickly. Let me move on. Uh, flip over to, uh, to Matthew chapter 1, verse uh, 24. Matthew chapter 1, verse 24. Uh, let's back up Ver to verse 20. Matthew 1, verse 20. He says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and she shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, uh, by, by Isaiah, and you, you can see the prophecy there um, from Isaiah chapter 7. Here's a guy who was quick to trust God. God comes to him in a dream. Not every person in the Bible who hears a word from the Lord obeys it, do they? You hear an awful lot of people in Scripture who have an experience with God, a theophany. God appears to them or comes to them in a vision. Not all of them obey. That seems odd to me. Does that seem odd to you? If God were to appear to you, say in the form of an angel or in the form of a dream even, and he were to tell you to do something, what would you do? I would do it, I think. <laughs> there are an awful lot of people in Scripture who choose not to do it. And so Joseph's reaction here of immediate obedience is unusual. We take it for granted, but it is unusual. He has this quick-to-trust nature. Uh, he, he trusts God very quickly, which brings to mind for us the question, are we quick to trust God or are we quick to worry? It's the opposite of trust, isn't it? Matthew chapter 6, When let's just flip over there real quick. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount in verse 25. He's coming to a close here in, in chapter 7, but in, 25, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Yeah, it is, right? He starts walking through that, that, that idea, and, and you think, yeah, life is more, about, is li life is more, more than about these things. These are tiny, minuscule part of life. It's so much bigger than these things. It's, it's caught up in God and my trust in Him and my focus. In verse 26 he says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into the barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And you think, yes, I am. Uh, God loves me more, certainly more than He loves them. And then he says in verse 27, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? doesn't even do you any good to worry. Why are we so good at it? Why are we so given to it? 
I don't know. Could it be perhaps that in our society we are taught that we're in charge, we're in control, and if I'm not in charge, then things will fall apart. And so I am constantly worried because I'm the one making the decisions, right? I'm number one. I'm the focus. I'm wrong, right? If that's my mentality, I'm the one who's wrong. Because I'm not number one. And I'm not the one who's making all the decisions. And I'm not, the Bible has a word for that. I'm not sovereign. Who is? God is. And if I trust in him, things will work out. That's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. Things may not work out the way you want them to. Your 401k may be gone. <laughs> right? Things may not go exactly the way you want them to go, but they'll go exactly the way he wants them to go. Because he's sovereign. He works things out like this. And it's to turn you more and more closely into the image of Christ. He's got a plan. I need to trust the plan. I need to trust him. Joseph is quick to trust. We need to be quick to trust too. Keep reading. Matthew chapter 1, verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to his son, and he called his name Jesus. They remained celibate during Mary's pregnancy with Jesus. So Joseph has some self-control. There's another thing that we can learn from Joseph here, right? So are you selfish? Or do you have self-control? Joseph's got an awful lot of self-control here, right? So we start thinking, who is the most important? Philippians 2, 3 says that I need to count you as more significant than myself. Joseph had seemed to take that into himself. He had learned these lessons from the Old Testament, from no doubt his mother and father teaching him these lessons from the Old Testament, where... People are more important than you. Where it's not a good thing to be selfish. Where selfishness is not valued. The group is what's valued. The betterment of the group is what's valued. 21st century American Christianity values the individual. It's not the culture that the Bible's written in. The culture the Bible is written in values the group. And so you sacrifice for the overall betterment of the group. So are we selfish or are we self-controlled? The Bible talks an awful lot about self-control. In fact, in Galatians 5, 22-24, it becomes one of the fruits of the Spirit, doesn't it? It's how people outside, non-believers, know that the Spirit lives inside of you your level of self-control. Because this isn't something that comes naturally to people. What happens when you take candy from a baby? We have that saying, right? It's like taking candy from a baby. You ever try to take candy from a baby? <laughs> You're going to hear about it, aren't you? They might not be able to be big enough to beat you up and take it back, but they will cry about it, right? They'll let you know about it. It's not easy taking candy from a baby. Why is that? Because they're selfish. It's not a bad thing necessarily with them. But they're selfish. They want what they want, right? Selfishness, self-control, rather, self-control is not something that you're born with. It's something that you grow into, and it is a characteristic of the Christian. If you don't have self-control, you need to go back and take a look at your faith. It's not growing like it ought to. Joseph says, though, this guy's got some self-control. He's not selfish. Last thing I want to point out to you. Uh, let's let's flip over uh, to Matthew chapter two. I'm running out of time. Matthew chapter two, verse thirteen. Jesus is born. Uh, interestingly enough, the last king of Israel doesn't have enough money in his purse to to buy an inn, uh, and his newborn is held in a manger. Is born in a manger, 
you would think that out of all the money that Solomon had, that David had, that all these kings of Israel had, they would have passed something down, but all that's gone by now. And he lives in very humble means. And Jesus will follow in that, 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 his footsteps there, very humble means, even not having a place to lay his head. So all of that has happened by this point. Jesus is most likely a toddler um, by this point. In Matthew chapter 2, uh, verse 13, let's just read through it. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So what does Joseph do? He gets this vision again. Not everyone obeys God's visions. Not everyone who has a theophany, an experience with God, a visitation from deity. Not everyone obeys, which again, just mind-blowing, but they don't. And so here this man has a theophany. He has this experience, this visitation from deity, from God. And God tells him to run right now. Go to Egypt and wait until I tell you to come back. And so what does, he do? what does he do? Well, look what he does. Verse 14. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by what? By night. Underline night. He woke up from this dream. Went and woke up Mary. Went and woke up Jesus. Got them on the camel or the donkey or whatever it is they're riding. And they hightailed it away from there all the way to Egypt that very night. He was quick to obey, wasn't he? Here's, here's what I want to get from what I want you to get from that. Are you inattentive to the spiritual dangers around you, or are you discerning? Joseph is a discerning guy. Check out what happens next. Not only does he go to Egypt immediately, but check out what he does in verse 19, Matthew 2, verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Okay, go home. That's, that's the word from, from God this time. So what's he do? He gets up and he goes home. Look, look what he does, though. Verse 21 gives you a little insight into what's going on in Joseph's mind. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah, uh, reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the, to the district of Galilee. Now, notice the sequence of events. He looks at the political scene in Judea and notices that Herod's son is reigning in his place. And automatically kind of thinks... That's probably a bad idea because this guy's dad tried to kill my son. So I'm going to stay away from there. And then in a dream, he's already made the decision, it looks like. Then in a dream, God says, good idea, good decision. He warns him to stay away from there. And so he goes to Nazareth. Now, why did he want to go to Judea in the first place? What's this guy's job? What's Joseph's job? He's a builder, right? He's a carpenter. Some, some, some scholars uh, think that this builder, he's, maybe he's not building furniture. Maybe he's more building walls and houses and things like that. Maybe, maybe a, um, a bricklayer, a mason is maybe what we would more refer to him as. And so why would it be a better idea for him to be located in Judea? It's where Jerusalem is, right? He's got much more lucrative and much more steady jobs in and around Jerusalem. He's going to be in the backwaters of Nazareth. There's nothing in Nazareth. There's like 50 families that live there, uh, 49 minus Joseph and Mary and their son and their children. And so he goes there. Why? To keep Jesus safe. Because it's not safe for Jesus in Judea. It's too close to Jerusalem. Too close to Herod's boy who might kill Jesus. He's got some discernment. You need the same thing. We need, as the church, the same kind of spiritual discernment. Protect your families. Protect yourself from all these things that want to pull us away from God, from the apathy that so enchants us, doesn't it? It's hard to live this life. It's hard to stay focused and passionate about God, isn't it? Especially in our current current culture. It's almost like they're pulling us away. We have to be more discerning now than we've ever been in the past. 
focus on scripture reading, focus on prayer, look for opportunities to go to grow closer to him, to each other, to stay away from these things that pull us away from him. Because Satan wants you to fail. He wants you to fail. You're going to have to overcome a whole lot to succeed. There's got an awful lot of enemies against you. Our culture doesn't even work in your favor anymore. Satan has never worked in your favor. There's an awful lot of things that are pulling us away from him. You're going to have to have the spiritual discernment to see through the lies that our culture and Satan throws at you. You only get that discernment through one way. You've got to be in this book. You've got to be reading. You've got to be praying. You've got to be spending time with the Father. That's the only way you get this kind of discernment. Joseph's got it. We need it. We can't withdraw, right? We can't withdraw from the world. He says you're in the world, but you're not what? You're not of the world. You, don't, you live in the middle of this culture, but you don't allow it to affect you like this. You push against it. You don't allow it to infiltrate you. We've allowed it to infiltrate us in some ways, right? We talked this morning about the redefinition of marriage, the redefinition of, uh, of womanhood, right? Those two ideas are not alone. The world has tried to redefine a lot of things that God holds as holy and pure. We're just going to push back against it and redeem those thoughts and those, those words, that lifestyle. We have to have discernment. The only way we get discernment is spending time with the Father. He begins to rub off on us. We need that kind of discernment. This morning, or this evening, if you haven't been baptized into Christ, if, if you need to make that right tonight, follow the two young ladies' example this morning. Because that's the first step, isn't it? To becoming right with Him, to being added to His family, to having your sins washed away. That happens only at baptism. It can't happen through any other way. He is, He's promised us that it happens in baptism alone. Maybe you've already made that decision. And you just need the prayers of this congregation to be the kind of Christian that God wants you to be. If you have any need tonight, why don't you come as we stand and sing. Good evening, church family. A couple of announcements before we are dismissed. Um, the food drive, we're having a postal food drive we have every single year. Uh, it is this Saturday uh, morning. Uh, we'll need help with drivers and also, um, I don't know, the 
counters, um, people who grab the uh, snatchers. I don't know you call them that. I don't know what you want to call the people who grab the food from the mailboxes. But uh, uh, we need help with that. Uh, time hasn't been set yet. Um, we'll know more information by Wednesday. So, um, But we need help with the food drive that we do every Saturday, uh, every year. But um, also, as a reminder to all the middle school and high school, there will be a, a devotional at the Knapps House. If you need the address for it, please see me or Derek, and we'll be more than happy to give it to you. Also, Vacation Bible School is June 5th through the 9th. We're still needing volunteers for that. Uh, please sign up if you can help. Also, Fort Hill, um, if you have a child going to Fort Hill on July 3rd through the 9th, um, you have to sign up by the 15th in order to get the discount. Um, Bentley and Addison were baptized this morning, which is great news. Um, we'll have their address posted out in the foyer board um, later on uh, this week, so that way you can write them a card of encouragement. I know they'd greatly appreciate that. Um, also, uh, news that um, Ernie Taylor, the husband of Judy Large Taylor, passed away last week, and the funeral will be held at Hall's Funeral Home at 2 o'clock this Monday. Um, and that is the brother-in-law of Kevin Large. Is that correct, Sandy? Okay. So remember that family in your prayers of passing. Um, also, remember continue to keep uh, Jennifer Baker in your prayers, Jim Haney, Charlie Boso, and Babe Jones in your prayers this week. If you had not had the opportunity to take the Lord's Supper, it has been prepared in the conference room. You may leave and do that now. We will sing one more song and be dismissed in prayer. Mike Williams will have our closing prayer. Um, number 697 is our last song. It was uh, suggested to me that this may be a new song for some of you. So those of you who know it, sing out. Now we're going to sing the first and last verses. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you at this time, Lord, thanking you for today, for the many blessings that you've bestowed upon us, for the beautiful weather that you've given us, Father, for our time here this evening, Lord, and just thank you for the church here, for each member, and uh, just thankful, Father, for Chris and the time he puts into his lessons, and Father, we're mindful of so many that are struggling with various health issues that have been mentioned uh, today. We just pray for each of them, pray your blessings upon them for healing and strength. And Father, we're so uh, thankful for Addison and Bentley and the decisions they made to put you um, on the baptism today, Father. We're just thankful for that and just pray for those two little girls, Father, as they uh, go forward. And Lord, just be with us as we leave here this evening. Give us safe travels home. Give us a good night's rest and a, a good week, Father. And Pray that we always keep you uh, first in our lives, our focus upon you. Pray that we look for opportunities to, to share the good news to those around us, that we can bring more people to know you, Father. Father, forgive us when we do fall short and sin against you. It's through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. <laughs>